Okay, well last week we went through some practical ways to listen to God. And why, why did we want to go through practical ways to listen to God? What, what was the reason for it from last week? You remember? What does listening to God allow us to do? Well, make wise choices, but specifically from Revelation 3. God, yes, get rich and specifically buy gold. Buy gold. We, the way you buy gold, or from Isaiah 55, the way you buy food and drink without having any money is to listen to God. That's where true riches come from. So we talked about four practical ways to listen to God. And what I'm going to do today is go back through those four practical ways to listen to God because we like to buy gold with, with no money. We like that. We like to be rich. We like to have true riches. So I'm going to go back through there and just expand on these four things a little bit uh, and some, some practical things. And maybe you have some things as well. So the first thing we talked about in listening to God, this opportunity to buy gold, this opportunity to... Uh, buy food and drink and sustenance without having any money. Uh, the first way to listen to God we talked to was reading the Bible. God's given us the Bible. And there's some very great ways we do this around here. Uh, Bible memory is a great way to read the Bible. Our WANA program is a terrific way to read the Bible. And I'm sure all of you have had various uh, times and means in which you've memorized the Bible. What better way to put seeds in your mind so that you can understand things as you go along through the day? And to the extent you have done that, that's great. And it's always, it's always great to add more. I don't think you can ever do too much of Bible memory. You know, the, uh, the Babylonian captivity, during the Babylonian captivity, the Jews created their scholastic tradition where they said we can't worship in the temple anymore so we'll worship God with our minds and they started the the Talmudic tradition of really studying the Bible and at at the time of Jesus according to some people that have uh, informed us about uh, about that the time of Jesus up on the northern shore of Galilee those those guys that had come back from that Babylonian tradition uh, the, the young men, by the time they're 15, would have known the whole Old Testament word perfect. And the, the guys who, and pretty much the pinnacle of, of um, uh, ambition for a young man was to become a rabbi. And if you wanted to be a rabbi, you not only had to be able to memorize it, but discuss the context and everything about the context. So, you know, it was, it was a, <clears throat> it was a, it was something that was an integral part of the culture to memorize Scripture. And it's a fantastic way to, to uh, know the Scripture and listen to God. Uh, there's a couple other things that, that I've personally benefited from immensely. Uh, of course, you can't really, you can't really uh, benefit from reading the Bible unless you set a time, aside time to read the Bible. And for those of you who are scheduled people... Uh, putting it in your schedule is a wise thing to do. I think most preachers are scheduled type people. And so they tend to emphasize that, which is fine. I'm not a scheduled type person. So what I have to do is create challenges for myself. And usually when I study the scripture best, it's when I can come up with a question that I want to uh, address. Because that's just kind of the way I'm wired. 
uh, this class helps me a lot. It help it helps me dig because I like I, I got I got to find something that's interesting to say to these people. You know, it's a, some and and it's not going to be interesting to them unless it's interesting to me. So I have to come up with questions. So that helps a lot. But the two things that I've learned that I think have helped me the most in in uh, reading the Bible and listening to God through reading the Bible, I'm going to tell you. The first thing is uh, so simple, and I think it's not it's not going to be a surprise to any of you, but it's so simple, but it's so rarely done in Western Christianity the last hundreds of years. And it's to look at who wrote whatever you're reading and who wrote who who the audience they were writing to and discern why they wrote it. You know, people people don't just sit down and write things randomly. Uh, People don't sit down and just start writing random thoughts and then send it to someone and then have somebody say, hey, let's put this in the Bible. It's not a random process that generated these scriptures. There's an author. There's a reason the author's writing and there's a, a group that they're writing to. And I... This was driven home to me to some extent when I started looking into some of the uh, pilgrim uh, preachers. And it's part of our heritage, so I thought I'd dig into it a little bit. And I looked up Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I started reading that. And then I noticed the, uh, the, the passage that, that, that it's done off of. Anybody know what the passage was that he used as his uh, text? For sinners in the hands of an angry God. Anybody know? Their foot shall slide in due time. Their foot shall slide in due time. And I thought, what? Foot shall slide in due time? What's that? It's from Deuteronomy. So I flipped it open, looked it up. And it's Moses writing to the Israelites and telling them, at some point in the future, your nation is going to do wrong. And when they do, they're going to suffer the consequences of that. And then I'm going to bring them back because I'm a merciful God. It has nothing whatsoever to do with standing on the precipice of a pit and dangling over the fire like a spider. Which is the, that's the description that uh, Jonathan Edwards used. Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. And I thought, and, and then as I looked, that's pretty common. It's pretty common, and and it's human nature, isn't it, that we say, uh, you start this even as little children, why did you do that? You ask a child, why did you do that? What do you get, what kind of answer do you get when you ask a child? Uh, Yeah, baby, I don't know. Or what else, what did you say, Jamie? Because. Yeah, because, or because he told me to do it. (laughs) Or, you know, you're you're not going to get a, well... I think I'm a sinful person, and I was really being self self oriented. And I sh- you, you don't get a, a rational, you get a, a justifying type of response, right? We, you don't have to train kids to self justify. So, um, I, you know, it, it, it's normal for us to say, "I want to make a point of some kind," and then go look for justification. So, you know, it's common for people. You know, where, where's a, where's a verse that says? Oh, there's one. I can use that. And you go justify. And you're not looking at what was written. 
from the perspective of who wrote it and who did they write it to. Now, it's certainly appropriate to take something someone said to someone, understand what they were saying to that person, and then make application in other ways. That's certainly appropriate. But I mean, I'll, I'm going to step into, uh, I'm going to step onto holy turf here, and and uh, so I, if you've got any rotten fruit, you might get it out here. But you know, the Roman road. As great as it is, and as useful as it is, when you look at the Roman road from the perspective of, when people talk about it from the perspective of, this is what this book is for, it's not. I mean, it, 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 is, an, it is an appropriate application, perhaps. But that's not what Paul was doing. He was writing to a group of people whose faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. You don't write to a group of people whose faith was spoken of throughout the whole world and try to show them from step one to step two how to get justified. Now, he does go through the justification process. So, as an application, no problem. But to claim that's what he was doing is just not looking at the evidence. The reason he's talking about justification is because the key in in the book of Romans is to make a distinction between justification, which is new birth, which we have no part in other than to receive it, and sanctification, which is growing up in Christ, which has everything to do with our choices that we make. And you have to have a distinction between the two. If you don't have a distinction between the two, you, you, you get messed up. And, and the, the, book was, the book of Romans was precipitated. Why? Why did, why did Paul write the book of Romans? What caused him to write it? He wrote it to a group of people he didn't know. It's the only book like that. Every other book, it's people he knows intimately and he's writing some kind of exhortation. Why did he write the book of Romans? See, isn't this is like core fundamental thing, and we don't even we don't even look at it, right? He was hearing what was happening in Rome. Well, yeah, he was doing that. that. That's a fact. But what was he hearing that was making him write this letter to people he didn't even know? Well, I know that verse that says so that you could know uh, glory and honor and immortality, and so grow them up. He certainly wanted to grow them up to be overcomers. But what precipitated the letter? You don't just. He certainly, that's certainly a key part of the, that's the, the core message that he has in there. But what precipitated him writing the letter? Huh? Yeah, well, he was congratulating them for their faith being spoken of throughout the whole world, but that's... He doesn't want the Judaizers to come in and corrupt, but what precipitated him writing the letter? He didn't have anything else to do. He didn't have anything else to do, okay? It's, Look, if you look, if you look, and I think it's chapter two. I always get confused whether it's two or three. It says, "As we are slanderously reported to have been teaching, as we have been slanderously reported that you are teach that we are teaching." Now, if you are an apostle and God has told you your mission is to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And your message is being slandered in Rome. Is Rome important at this time? Why is Rome important? It's the center of the world. And who's your message being slandered to? A group of believers whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. 
if a group of believers whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, in the center of the world, believe the slander about your gospel, what's going to happen to your ministry? Would you write a letter? Okay, now, why, why do we not know this? <laughs> because this isn't what we focus on. We focus on, I've got a point to make. And I want to go find something to... It's, it's our tradition. This is our tradition. This is what's been handed down to us. And what I'm saying is, it's not a good tradition. This is one we ought to throw overboard. And we ought to say, thank you very much for that. But let me first look at who wrote this, who did they write it to, and why. Why were they writing this? Some things are fairly obvious. Why did Paul write 1 Corinthians? Yeah, yeah, they had a big problem going on, right? They had a specific problem going on. And they had some first and second Corinthians and they had questions and he's answering questions. So that yes, sir, Tom. Well, you know, it's it's sort of interesting that that the conservatives when they uh, interpret the constitution, uh, sort of the old school yes. original intent, original yes. It's sort of the same They do the same kind of thing, don't they? Yeah, that's right. They're trying not only to discern uh, to interpret this new question based on the Constitution. They're trying to historically determine what the intent of the... Right. What did they really mean by this? And then how do we apply it in the modern era? Yeah, it's, just, it's the same kind of thing. It's the, it's the notion that the Bible was written in a normal manner, that a person meant something when they said it, and they intended for the person who was, who was hearing it to hear it in a certain way. And it's inspired so that whatever that said is true in every respect. So if we can get that perspective, we can apply that in all kinds of ways. Well, when you understand that uh, Paul wrote Romans because his message was being slandered, what would be the most important question you could ask next? Yeah, how was the, what was the slander? What was the slander, do you know? Yes, yes. The slander in, in the Romans 2, it says, let us may do evil that good may come. That's the slander. And the, the other way he says it is, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Because Paul's claim is, you cannot out the grace of God. No matter, You can run as fast as you can, and you will not get past God sinning. Because the cross has paid for everything. And if you pile it up, it's just going to be taller. You cannot out the grace of God because justification is completely free and independent of anything you ever do. And the reason the Roman road is there is because he is, he is uh, making it clear that justification comes by faith alone. Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. Circumcision came 20 years later. See, there's a total separation between covenant and righteousness and declaration, justification righteousness. The law came 400 years later. There's a complete separation between the law and justification righteousness. So the whole book of Romans is the question of, well, if we've been declared righteous, then why should we not just live in sin all we want to? Because everybody knows sin's fun. Nobody, nobody... Nobody's going to deny that, okay? And so his whole 
His whole point in his book is to, is to answer the question, why shouldn't we sin if we can? And that's why he says, well, it's sin's death. You've been resurrected. You got, everybody comes to the funeral home for the, for the wake and the gathering. You get out of the casket. Everybody's happy. It's been a resurrection. Two weeks later, you say, you know, it was comfortable in that casket. I kind of like that funeral home. And you go back, knock on it, and say, can I get back in that casket again? Matter of fact, I might even like to be buried. And Paul's saying, you know, does that, does that really make any sense, really? You were a slave. You're set free. You're on the galley ship, chained. People are whipping you. Somebody comes and says, you've been set free. They unlock the manacles. Hallelujah, I'm free. You go for a month and you say, you know, my muscles just aren't what they used to be. And, you know, I kind of like being with... You know, is anybody going to do that? That's crazy. Why would you want to... You've come out from under condemnation. Sin has consequences. What, what, what payment do you get for sinning? Death. Yeah, that has consequences. And, and you were on the payroll of death... And now you don't have to be on that payroll anymore. You want to get back on that payroll again? You want those consequences, those negative consequences? Really? Now, we don't sin because we have to in order to get justification. We don't sin because we don't want the wrath of God (coughs) pouring on us that we've been delivered from. And in Romans 1, how's the wrath of God poured out? (coughs) Giving us what we want. Letting us have what we demand. And so he's saying, don't do that. And he contrasts the righteousness of faith and the righteousness of the law because the righteousness of faith brings righteousness and the righteousness of the law doesn't. And the reason he's doing that is because his slanderers are preaching that the law is necessary as an integral part of justification. And that's the book of Romans. And if you understand that, it just all makes a lot more sense. And your ability to apply then the jot and the tittle is going to be much more accurate. And it is appropriate to use jot and tittle. You know, Paul builds one of his big arguments on the fact that seed is singular rather than plural. So getting that down to the minute is completely appropriate, but not without the full context. And I'm going to tell you for me, listening to God by reading the Bible and, and asking that question, well, why is he writing this? Who's this to? Why is he saying that? And I've, what I've found is the more confusing a passage is, when I get to a passage and go, why? I automatically think, I must not understand who's saying this and who they're saying it to and why they're saying it. And if I go straight back to that and I just puzzle on it until, ah, oh, of course... That's number one. Read the Bible. Look at the writer in the audience and why they wrote it. There's slander involved. Of course you're going to defend your, your ministry if you're slandered. The second thing that really helped me immensely was uh, Jody Dillow, who pointed out the, the technical phrase he uses, because he's a wonk, you know, the policy wonk guys. Illegitimate totality transfer. Don't you love that phrase? Illegitimate means you shouldn't do it. Totality meaning you always do it. 
Transfer meaning it's going from one thing to the other. And here's the notion. It's that you take the meaning of a word in one context and say, because it's that meaning in that context, then it must be that meaning in all contexts. And the word that has created the most confusion for me and, and, and obstacle to listening to God through reading the Bible is the word salvation and save. Because I grew up, and if you said save and soul in any kind of context, save and soul, that only meant one thing. The spider dangling over the fiery pit. And the question is, you know, if, is God going to let go or am I going to jump out of that hand and say, no, I don't want to go in that. That's all that it could ever mean. Only possible thing you meant. Because soul only means one thing, heaven, hell. And save only means one thing, heaven, hell. Now, what I've learned is that this Greek word sozo or soterio, whether it's a noun or a verb, is used in the Bible exactly the same way we use it in English. If I say to you, have you saved any money this week? What am I asking? Yeah, have you hung on to any? Okay, so my question is, have you delivered any of your wages from being consumed and delivered it to being preserved for future use? That's what I'm asking. What would you think if you asked someone that and said, hey, have you saved any money this month? And they said, oh yes, I prayed over my checkbook and it came to Jesus. It was going to hell and now it's bound for glory. What would you, what would you think about that? Yeah, they think they're a nut, right? That's exactly what we do. That's exactly what we do with this in Bible. You know, the word soul... Is an, in the English translation, is a translation of the Greek word psuche. We, we get our word psych, psyche from it, psychology. And half the time it's translated soul, and half the time it's translated life. Now, what if, what if somebody says, I want to save your life? What, what comes in your mind? Oh, oh, that means he doesn't want me to go to hell? And it doesn't come into your mind, right? But what if they say, I want to save your soul? Well, then I want you to go to heaven, right? It's the same word. It's just the translators are pushing it in a direction because they want to make everything about heaven and hell. So when it comes along and says, and the person was sozo from their disease, they don't write save from the disease. They write healed. But it's the same word because they're pushing it in a direction. And when I understood that, hey, Mario Rivera saves the game doesn't mean the Yankees are going to heaven. (laughs) You know, I always have to ask when I see the word save, who's being delivered from what? What's being delivered from what? And you know, most of the time when you see the word save, it's a believer who's being delivered from the power of sin so they can live... The Christian walk. Now why would that make sense that that's mostly what it's saying? Who's writing these letters? Paul, John, Peter. Who are they writing it to? They're disciples. Peter says, I'm about to die. I'm going to die just like the Lord told me to. I was, I'm sorry, I was going to be. 
I'm going to be martyred. I know it's coming. I'm writing this down because I've been telling you this over and over again. I'm not going to be here to keep telling you. I'm writing it down for you. It's, it's to his faithful that he's saying this. Is he going to say to the faithful, please go to heaven? It doesn't even make any sense. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. And, and you'll talk to people and they'll say, yeah, but every church has unbelievers in the audience. It's not a sermon for heaven's sakes. It's not an evangelistic service. They weren't recording it and then they transcribed it. That's not why. He's writing a letter from someplace else. And, and when, I, when I realized that, I, I was, it's like the scales fell off my eyes. You know, I've, been, I've sat through trainings on the book of Hebrews uh, early in my Christian life. And I, and I got done and thought, I guess you just have to have a Ph.D. to understand this book. Sounds like it says the dog ran out of the house. And by the time that guy gets done, it's the deer was shot in the woods. You know, it, how did he do that? He just must have to have a THD. You know, that, that must be done. Well, it's... No, no, it's actually pretty simple. If you just look at who wrote it, who wrote it to the book of Hebrews, this, this uh, writer's writing to a group of people. He says at the end... Um, Bear with these few words of exhortation. I'm hoping to be with you soon. Pray for me. He says, Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. He says, I'm mindful of all the good work you have done and continue to do. He says, Remember the days when you ministered to me in my chains and you... and." and uh, you lost your possessions and were glad because you know you have a more enduring possession in heaven. Does this sound like a bunch of lost people? Is, is it an evangelistic sermon to people he's never met before? This is not a Billy Graham letter. So anyway, so listen to God. Those are two huge keys that I've had in reading the Bible. The second thing we talked about that is the listening to God, which is the key. The way we buy gold without any money or the way we buy food and drink all we want without any money, the, the path to true riches is listening God to God. So the first way is read the Bible and there's a couple of keys for reading the Bible. The second thing we talked about was nature. We talked about Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, uttering speech day by day. And we talked about looking at nature and seeing, seeing God, hearing God. And I want to I want to hear just think about uh, one of the things that we talked about in this series of how to be rich was five things that the researchers have found that uh, wealthy people can do to keep their money from making them miserable, which is the norm. Money mainly makes people miserable, and this was advice from this study of five things they could do, and they were uh, two fasting principles. If you like something, to kind of space it out. You know, you can buy all the chocolate in the world. Don't don't do it. You'll you'll end up hating chocolate. You know, kind of parse it out a little bit, and and that's so that's frequency. And then also there was this timing: pay first, enjoy later. Was another principle. And then they had buy experiences instead of stuff, which makes sense, right? Because you really life is made abundant 
when you enjoy sharing it with other people. So, and then and then there was uh, by time instead of stuff. And then there was do things for other people. And it's interesting, by time is the most interesting to me because how do you do that? How many hours do you have in a day? How many hours do rich people have in a day? How many hours do poor people have in a day? How do you buy time? You know what that implies is that these wealthy people have gotten themselves as as slaves to someone else. Have you been around really powerful or really wealthy people and and what you have to try to do is figure out how to get to their scheduler because you can't talk to them and the scheduler determines who they will talk to and for how long why would you want to schedule the scheduler is more powerful than the person is so buy time is very interesting and what they're really saying I think is not buy time it's redeem your time so you can spend it on what you really care about and what you should care about is doing things with other people that you enjoy doing with. The best way to redeem your time is to order your life where you always spend time with other people that you enjoy doing stuff with. That'd be the ideal, wouldn't it? I, that's, that's, that's what I work on and mostly have pulled it off. Uh, I, I have the, just the greatest life there is. I work with people I like. I live with people I like. <laughs> Uh, I, I like I like you guys, huh? You can give Uncle Al. <laughs> I like you. You know, and, and and I engage with people I don't like, but most of that is my service to others that I do, and I do it mostly with the people I like. So it's a good thing to angle for. But this, this, this buy time, this redeem time, uh, we could use it to this nature concept. Because nature's around us all the time. And let me just challenge you to do something. I've, I try to do this and I find it's incredibly helpful to me. I used to have a really, an office with a really fantastic view. I don't have that anymore. But... Uh, yeah, he has a view of a garage. Yeah, but uh, when I did, I would take a window breaks, and I would just man, look at those clouds, and just think about how amazing those clouds are from time to time. But you don't have to have a view to do this thing. There's always amazing stuff going on around us. I mean, you can even you can even uh, burp or something and think, now where did that come from? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? All the little things going on down in my bowels, and and uh, you know, I'm I'm eating this stuff, chewing it up. It tastes good, and then it goes down, and something down there. There's all these little factories down there, and there's little trucks that come and pick it up and take it to the Walmart distribution center, and they parse it out, and this goes over here, and that goes over there, and then it got the assembly line starts, and they start breaking it down, and and then I I can talk and eat and think. Isn't that, isn't that, that's unbelievable what's going on inside of me. And I don't, I'm not even having to direct it all. Or you can walk by and flip on the light and think, how do those electrons know to do that? Isn't that amazing? You can, th- you can think about the person across from you and, and, and ask, how do they know what I'm saying? I don't even know what I'm saying. <laughs> so I think the heavens declare the glory of God. You can just redeem little snippets of time and just be aware. It's amazing the stuff that's going around us all the time. How does 
I think I said this a couple of weeks ago. How do we not just fly off the world? You know, what if God just said, I'm just going to stop this spinning just for a second. Everything just flies off. The heavens declare the glory of God. I think it's, it's, just, worth, it's just worth some snippets of time. Okay, well the third thing was, listen to others. Jesus said to the disciples when he sent the 70 out, he said, when they listen to you, they're listening to me. So when we listen to one another, we're buying gold from God when, when we hang around godly people. And we have a friend that used to say, you can't be like people you're not around. So one thing is to make a deliberate effort to be around people that are going to get you rich. It's not uncommon for people to figure out how to be around people that have a lot of money. People that have a lot of money have you know, islands in the Bahamas and they have vacation homes and they have jet airplanes and stuff and it's fun to go do all that stuff especially since you can leave and they have all the problems, right? <laughs> and so it's, it's not uncommon. But that stuff just comes and goes. So we're talking about riches that last. Gold that lasts. And, and if we're around godly people that can help us live godly lives, then we're really being smart. Being around rich people is a smart thing to do. And the richest people are the ones with wisdom. And if we can hang around those people, it's a, it's a great way to get rich. So, our, our church, to the extent that we have people that aren't in small groups or don't have a circle of friends that they can integrate with, aren't engaged in serving. You know, one great way to be around great uh, godly people is to do things like work in the nursery or, or being one of the youth leaders or being a WANA's leader or something like that. When you do that, you're giving yourself the all, all opportunity to do this. And you may learn more from that than you do sitting and listening to a sermon or coming to a Sunday school class and listening to me. And when we have people that aren't engaged like that, we we need to reach out and encourage them to get engaged. Working, serving together is a fantastic opportunity to be around those godly people and hear what they have to say. And it could be that watching Jamie interact with uh, young children has more impact on your growth this week than hearing something that Tim has to say. So this is something we usually don't put a real high priority on it's it's more like i'm serving because i'm supposed to or i'm serving to try to diminish the amount of guilt that's being put on me (laughs) serving's a way to get rich you're hanging around the rich people they all have islands in the bahamas in the new earth anyway don't forget the parable of unrighteous steward Make yourself friends with unrighteous money that they'll invite you into their eternal home, their eternal Biltmore. You'll get on the invitation list to their Biltmore. Well, I think that I think that also applies to this. It's not just doing it with money; it's your time, and you redeem your time when you hang around godly people, and when you do life with godly people, you get putting each other on your invitation list, and just making yourself an enrichment forevermore. James 1, 
If you want to turn that, since it's a Sunday school class, we've got to use the Bible at least once. And just look at one twenty-six. If anyone among you thinks he's religious. So now I'm going to do an entire sermon, and I'm going to determine what if anyone among you thinks he's religious means without any context. Just an example. No, I'm not going to do that. So look at this uh, 1 verse 19. So then, my beloved brethren, it's another book to believers, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, swift to hear. What are we talking about? What's the word? Listening. Talking about listening. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If you really listen to someone, it's hard to go to wrath. Because you have to set aside your own thoughts in order to hear what they have to say. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your lives. Suke. So, we're talking about saving our lives from what? What's the context talking about here? What's in here that you would like to be delivered from? Well, yeah, trials in the verse 1, but what's in this verse? Yeah, would you, do you like filthiness? Mark, uh, you in particular, do you like filthiness and disorder? <laughs> would you like to be delivered and preserved from that? Please. Okay. How about wickedness? Do you like wickedness? You want all of that you can get? Or would you like to be delivered from wickedness? How about... Uh, oh, well, those are the two things. Filthiness, overflow, wickedness. So you want to be delivered from that? How do you do it? Receive with meekness the implanted word. How do you do that? Listen. And how do you do that? You start by listening to people. And if you listen to people, you're learning to listen. And when you listen, learn to listen to people, you're learning to set aside your own wrath. Because instead of not listening to them and just waiting for their mouth to stop moving so you can blast them, you're with your wrath, you're actually trying to understand, well, what are you saying? Why are you saying it? What's your perspective? I may or may not agree with it, but I'm going to listen to it. And that's training your soul to set aside wickedness and overflow of evil so you can receive the Word. And what better people to listen to than godly people? But you can practice this, this on ungodly people. You can actually listen to them and should. But the best thing to do is listen to godly people because they're going to help you deliver your life from the pollution of wickedness and overflow of evil. Deliver your life, save your soul. Deliver your life, save your soul. You automatically, if you say deliver your life, you think, well, what? Deliver it from what? Save your soul. Hell. Kind of making the other point. So the fourth thing that we talked about is listening to God. And we talked about that the Spirit's actually talking to us all the time. Jesus said, I'm going to send the Spirit because the Spirit is going to talk to you and tell you the things that I could tell you, but you can't handle it right now. I could tell you this, you can't handle it. I'm going to let the Spirit... And He's going to speak to you the things He hears. Speaking. 
It's real interesting. There's a book that's a Christian classic called uh, Practicing the Presence of God. Anybody know this book? You know, you know when it was written? It's about a guy named Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a French... He worked in a French monastery. He was, work, he was on the kitchen staff in the 1600s. And this is still one of the main books about practicing the presence of God in Christianity. Still in print, still widely circulated, still influential. From the 1600s, he was on the kitchen staff. Let me just read you a little bit about it. The first time I saw Brother Lawrence was on August 3, 1666. Oh, there's another thing about Brother Lawrence. He didn't write any of the book. He never wrote anything. He said, every time I tried to write something down, it was so inferior compared to what was going on in my soul, I just immediately tore it up. So these are all people writing about conversations they had with the kitchen staff guy. He never made it, even made it in to be a monk. So the first time I saw Brother Lawrence was on August 3rd, 1666. During our conversation, he told me many things among them that God had done him a remarkable favor in his conversion at age 18. That winter, seeing a tree stripped of its leaves and considering that within a little time the leaves would be renewed and the flowers and fruit would appear, he received a high view of the providence and power of God that never left his soul. There's your nature observation. Psalm 19 in action. This view perfectly set him loose from the world and kindled in him such a great love for God he could not tell whether it had increased during the more than 40 years since then. Actually, I think you can say it has. He had been a footman to this particular guy and he, and he himself was a great awkward fellow who broke everything. And he had desired to be accepted into a monastery thinking maybe there he would suffer for his awkwardness and the faults he would commit so he would sacrifice his life and pleasures to God. Which was a common thinking in those days. I need to suffer in order to hit God. And he said it was, he was disappointed severely because he thought he was supposed to be suffering and he was really happy. Brother Lawrence ended the conversation by saying that if it was my intention to serve God sincerely, I should come to him as often as I please without any fear of being troublesome. But if it was not my intention, not to bother him anymore. He understood some things, didn't he? Uh, Let's see. This is uh, from a guy named Nicholas Herman who died in 1691. He says that there are no comprehensive biographies of Brother Lawrence is both ironic and perfect. Ironic because he stands today as a man of profound influence in classic Christian literature and we have a natural curiosity about him. And perfect because his life was never about him. He was a simple man who simply served God. And the main way he served God was by washing dishes. In fact, he never even wrote a book. The book you're about to read is a compilation of letters and recollections of conversations that were assembled after his death. Brother Lawrence was a Carmelite monk. Oh, I was wrong. He was a monk. Who was born Nicholas Herman in the Lorraine province of France sometimes around 1605. Nobody knows the exact date of his birth because he was so humble nobody bothered to record it. He was in a Carmelite order. And he took on the name Brother Lawrence. He was assigned to kitchen duty. 
preparing food and washing dishes and mopping floors. Amidst the steaming pots and pans, he entered into conversation with God. He admitted distaste for kitchen drudgery day in and day out. So he's very human. But more important, the secret of his grace that he disliked it was beside the point. That he used it to serve God was the gift. He transformed drudgery into devotion. And therein is the lesson we learn as we browse his letters and eavesdrop on conversations held hundreds of years ago. This is a quote from uh, Brother Lawrence. The time of business does not differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were on my knees at the Blessed Sacrament. Brother Lawrence says of his constant conversation with God, I make it my business to rest in his holy presence which I keep myself in by habitual, habitual, silent and secret conversation with God. This often causes me joys and raptures inwardly and sometimes so outwardly so great I'm forced to use means to moderate them. Doesn't want to bother the people around him. It's tempting to think Brother Lawrence's grace came easily, that he was a serene and joyful monk who smiled and moved gently through his days, but this was not the case. He was, in fact, a very human man, prone to anxiety and melancholy. His nature, however, was secondary to his relationship with God. He suffered from sciatic gout and created great agony while he was in the kitchen. But, He said, we ought not to grow tired of doing little things for the love of God who regards not the greatness of the work but the love in which it's performed. So here's a guy who was in kitchen duty and because he took menial tasks and did them for the devotion of God became immensely joyful as a person and drew people to come and talk to him and ask, how are you doing this? And... 500 years later, we're still reading about it. 400 years later, we're still reading about it. Why? Well, I think one reason is because he was in a monastery and people kind of expect amazing things to happen in monasteries. There's probably a lot of people like this that didn't get talked to. But another reason is, I think, because this subject doesn't get talked about enough. There should be, there should be books galore on this. But we can all write the book in our own lives. There's no such thing as a menial task in the eyes of God. He gave us an example of the main thing that he wanted to focus on in terms of serving other people. What is it? One example he used over and over again. A cup of cold water in his name. So you've got to go to the cistern. You've got to take a pot. You've got to walk down the stairs, dip it out. Come back up and pour some out. It's trouble. I mean, I, I know all you males when you had back in the days when you had a water bottle in the refrigerator. I know that when it got down to half an inch, you stopped drinking it. I know that. Instead of filling it up, right? Right? Yeah. So, and the females too? Did you do it too? Is that what Harry Giggle there? Yes, that's, we, we, we go out of our way not to have any trouble. So, a cup of cold water is trouble. But it's something most anybody can do. 
And that's the example Jesus used. A menial thing just to do it, take a little effort to go out of your way to do something in His name. And that's Brother Lawrence's, Lawrence's point. Everything we do, business, children, family, neighbors, church, everything we do is, not, is all hugely meaningful. It's changing the whole universe every time we do anything in Jesus' name. And how do we do that? We have an ongoing conversation with him. All and what do you want me to do next? I think the most important prayer we can pray might be, what do you want me to do next? How do you want me to treat this person? Because listening to God is more important than talking to God. He wants to hear our petition. Righteous man of a, a prayer of a righteous man avails much. I'm not saying don't talk to God. But I am saying listening to God is how we get gold and riches. And we can do that just as an ongoing conversation, just like Brother Lawrence did. So, we like to be rich. We want riches that last. We want riches you don't have to worry about spoiling or being stolen. We want riches that will compound forever. We don't, we don't want uh, the stock market or some external force to take it away from us. And this is the way we get it. We listen to God. And listening to God involves reading His Word, Reading what it actually says. Being, paying attention to the world around us. It's speaking to us all the time. Listening to others, especially godly people, because God can be speaking through them and is all the time. And having an ongoing conversation with God, even in things that the world says is menial. But there's no such thing as menial in the economy of God. So, let me see. <clears throat> 